Starting a new series today, as you can see from uh, the sermon note sheets and the graphics on the screen. I want to begin by looking uh, briefly at a passage from Galatians chapter 3. And this, this passage from Galatians chapter 3, we're going to keep before us throughout this series. In, in Galatians 3, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul has written where he's weighing in on a debate about salvation. The debate is this. Jesus had spent his life ministering almost exclusively to people of Jewish heritage, ethnic Jews. And now we're about 25 years later and people from other ethnic backgrounds are coming to faith in Christ. And that phenomenon leads to a lot of disagreements about what exactly these these Gentiles would have to do to earn their salvation. The reasoning was that if Jesus' message was for the Jews, then people from outside ethnic Judaism must have to first buy in to Judaism in order to participate in the gospel. And the debate is what precisely would they have to do in order to do that. And so Paul writes this letter in large part to weigh in on that debate. And we read about it in chapter 3. I'm going to read just a couple of lines here now, beginning in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Paul writes this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The Galatians were of, of mixed ethnic groups. There were, there were Jews and Gentiles in, in this region where he was writing this letter to. And he says, look, stop debating amongst yourselves about who gets in and who doesn't and who has to do what to get in. He says, I'll say it again, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. I've emphasized that last line in the way we had it printed on the screen, so I'm going to read it again. You are Abraham's heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. He's writing that to a community that includes both Jews and Gentiles, presumably slave and free, male and female, and people from a variety of other backgrounds. One more time, just for good measure, you are Abraham's heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. It's that verse that is going to be the inspiration for uh, the sermons that I prepare over the next several months. This idea of being an heir to the promise that God made to Abraham. You see, the Jews took great pride in their ancestry, which they collectively traced all the way back to Abraham. He was the father of their national heritage, much in the same way that Americans think of George Washington as the father of our nation. But imagine for a moment that every American citizen could go back on Ancestry.com and trace their own family tree back to George Washington. Imagine that everyone in this nation was the great, 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 etc. grandson or granddaughter of George Washington. Not only did he found our nation, but he's grandpa to us all. That's kind of the dynamic of what the Jews had in terms of their lineage 
to Abraham. And what Paul is saying now then is that through Jesus, people of all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds, people with all sorts of different family trees have the right to be called Abraham's children. Paul is saying there's essentially no difference between Jew and Gentile because what matters to God isn't our common ancestry. What matters to God is our common spiritual inheritance. In Christ, we have all become heirs of God's promise to Abraham. So as I said, we're going to spend the next several months learning about that promise. If we're heirs to this promise... behooves us to know what the promise is. We're going to learn how it applies to us. We're going to read these ancient stories about Abraham and and his descendants because the Bible says it's the key to understanding our own salvation. The story of Abraham, as you may know, is one of the oldest stories in the entire Bible. He lived in a time when certainly there was no such thing as a Christian. And in fact, there was no such thing as a Jew. His story comes long before the stories of the prophets or the great kings of the Old Testament. His story comes long before Moses. Almost any Bible character you can name off the top of your head, Abraham comes chronologically before almost all of them. As a matter of fact, we meet Abraham for the very first time in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11. This is the origin story for Abraham. It starts back in the time when Abraham was known by his given name, Abram. Spoiler alert, later on he's going to have a name change. So today I'm going to refer to him as Abraham. Abram, I already did it. I considered putting a jar up here that I would have to put a dollar in every time I called him Abraham instead of Abram, and then we could all split it and go out to lunch afterwards. Maybe you can just keep track in your head and tell me what I owe you after the fact. Genesis chapter 11, back when he was known by his given name, Abram. Actually, before we meet Abram, we meet his father, who was a man named Terah. Terah was from ancient Mesopotamia, living in a city called Ur. We've excavated Ur. We know exactly where it was. And I actually put a map together today that we can see. A couple of maps. You know it's anointed when when Dan brings the maps put Ur there in the Middle East, and I put the the present-day nations that are there, not because these nations exist back in Abram's day, but because it kind of gives us an idea of geographically what are we talking about. Ur is an ancient, ancient city uh, in the southern portion of what we today would call Iraq, and that's where Terah and his family, his ancestors, had lived for many, many years. Now, as best we can tell, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Terah specifically, but we know that the people that lived in Ur in Terah's day were pagans. That means Terah and his family likely worshipped many different gods, probably most especially the one that they considered to be the god of the moon. Terah had three sons. One of his sons was, in fact, Abram. Now, one of Abram's brothers died as a young adult, and so that left behind an orphan boy by the name of Lot. Lot was Abram's nephew. And so Abram, because he had no children of his own, he took Lot into his own household and raised him. Now, at some point, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 11, Terah decided to leave the city of Ur. And so Terah leaves Ur and he takes with him Abram and Abram's nephew Lot along with their families. And together they journeyed north through those fertile lands of the rivers 
to a city called Haran. You can see that on the map there. Haran still exists today. We know exactly where it is in the southern portion of Turkey. Terah and Abram and Lot journeyed up through what historians refer to as the Fertile Crescent. Do you remember that from your world history class? The Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers there. They journeyed all the way up to Haran. Now the Bible says that Terah originally intended to take his family all the way to the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and they settled there instead. Over time in Haran, Terah and Abram and Lot became very, very wealthy. They lived there for many years, so long so, in fact, that eventually Terah died. Grandpa Terah has died, and now Abram is 75 years old. His father has passed. Lot is probably relatively close to Abram in age. And so that leaves Abram as Lot as kind of the leaders of this large extended clan or family business you can think of it as. Abram still had no children of his own, but Lot did. And beyond just the family members, there were household servants, there were employees, there were all kinds of people associated with the family enterprise, all kinds of people who depended upon Abram and Lot. And all together, we speculate that there were many hundreds, perhaps more than a thousand people that were all part of this clan. And it's at this point that Abram, now the leader of the pack, says, it's time to continue on this journey. And so Abram moves on from Haran. In the opening lines of Genesis chapter 12, which is our text today, they tell us why Abram moved. I'm going to read now from Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and he headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. Then he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. At that time, the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. After that, Abram traveled south and set up camp in the hill country with Bethel to the west and I to the east. There he built another altar and dedicated it to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord. Then Abram continued traveling south by stages toward the Negev. It's time for one last map to show the completion of the journey. You can see that Abram and his family started out in Ur, down in the southern portion of what we would call Iraq. They traveled up through the Fertile Crescent to Haran and settled there for many years. Then after Abram's father, Terah, died, the remaining family members, along with all of their, what the ancients would call their household, all of the people associated with them, traveled back south along the curve of the Fertile Crescent through the coastlands of what we would call Syria, Lebanon, Israel, into this city Shechem. 
And as we just read, from there, Abram kept going south, bit by bit by bit, bit toward the Negev, which is the desert in southern Israel. Let's recap what we know. Abram grew up in a home that followed a false religion and worshipped false gods. At some point, we don't know exactly when, but at some point, Abram heard a message from Yahweh, the one true God. We don't know exactly how he got that message. Did he have a vision? Did he hear an audible voice? Was it a dream? But somehow he got a message from God and the message told Abraham, ooh, dollar. The message told Abram to leave his family and go to a new place. In obedience to that message, Abram left, but he didn't leave his family behind. Apparently he convinced his father and his nephew to come with him. Abram's father was only willing to go part way before settling down. And so it wasn't until dad died that Abram, now the ranking member of the family, was able to continue the journey to completion. And so after they arrived in Canaan, God reaffirmed that call to Abram, telling him that this land would be the land for his descendants. But there's a little bit of cruel irony in that statement because... Abram was already old and he had no descendants. What could God mean by that? Along the way, though, Abram trusted God and he remained committed to the promises despite not knowing for sure how, when, or where those promises might be fulfilled. The how, the when, and the where are questions that in some cases we're going to take centuries to figure out. We'll get to those questions in due time. For today, though, I just want to review the promise itself. Now, remember from Galatians that we read at the beginning of today, the New Testament says that through Jesus, we who are in Christ, we are heirs of this promise. And so it's worth knowing what the promise is. And it begins this way. God promised a place. Chapter 12, verse 1, we read it. God says to Abram, leave your native country and go to the land I will show you. Think about how that must have actually worked as God and Abram are having this conversation. God says to Abram, leave your homeland, leave the place you're familiar with and go to the place I will show you. And Abram says, all right, I'm on board. Where do you want me to go? And God says, I'll tell you later. For now, just get moving. That's so often how God calls us into new blessings. Leave where you are, the voice of the Lord says, with very, very little to tell us about the rest of the details. Unfortunately, human nature is such that we usually don't like to leave the known and exchange it for the unknown. It's one thing to begin a faith journey when we don't know the directions. But faith itself requires us to sometimes begin journeys even when we don't know the destination. And that's where God's promise comes in. Abram didn't know the destination, but he knew that God had promised him a place. Abram couldn't see the place. He didn't know where it was. He didn't know anything about it. But he journeyed in faith that God had a place for him. He held to his conviction that God had the proper place prepared. And then one day, Abram arrived. 
In a wilderness camp under a giant oak tree, Abram heard God's voice for a second time. We read it in verse 7. He said, I will give this land to your descendants. This is the place. This is the land I was talking about. This is the place I had prepared for you. All this time, Abram had no way of knowing where God was sending him until he finally arrived. And like Abram, we who know Jesus... We are pilgrims in a land that we weren't meant to stay in. We are on a journey to a place that we won't recognize until we arrive. But faith means we continue in the belief and the conviction that, yes, we will arrive because God has prepared a place for us. Among Jesus' last words are the echo of this promise to his followers. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Folks, it's simply in God's nature to prepare a place for his people. The Bible begins with God creating the entire universe, and yet within the expanse, the unknown expanse of the universe, he doesn't place humankind into the universe until he has a place prepared for them. He says there's a very, very specific, there's cosmos here, there's mountains here, there's oceans here, but no, I have a place for you, and he doesn't allow humanity into the universe until the proper place is prepared. The end of the Bible tells essentially the same story. The heavens go on infinitely, but God says, I have a place here for you, my children. The testimony of Revelation is that the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man, they have come together. There's a place prepared for his people. From the beginning of scripture to the end of scripture, it's the very nature of God to say, my child, I have a place for you. I have a place for you. And not only did God promise a place, God promised a people. Leave your relatives, he said to Abram. Leave your father's family and I will make you into a great nation. Can I tell you this? You can't have a nation if you don't have a people. You can't have a nation if you don't have a people. Now, this, as we recognized a few moments ago, is where things begin to get a little bit messy for Abram because, yes, he obeyed God's call to move, but not entirely. God had very, very clearly said, leave your family, but Abram didn't do that. He took his family with him. And in so doing, he delayed the fulfillment of God's promise by untold years. On his own, Abram could have traveled right up through Haran, taken a left turn on the turnpike, and followed the fertile coastland straight down to Canaan. I think the story is clear that that's what God wanted him to do, but he didn't. He didn't. He felt like he couldn't because he was unwilling to actually leave behind everything that God was asking him to leave behind. He was too accustomed to belonging with the tribe that he used to belong to. But as strange as it might sound to you today, leaving is part of the common legacy of the people of God. Among God's first instructions to humanity, among the first things he says about this is how life works is the instruction that one day you need to leave your father and mother and become united to your spouse. Do you remember that Jesus called the fishermen to leave their nets behind them and come and follow him? And that meant leaving their friends. 
their co-workers, and at least in the case of James and John, their father. Time and time again, the call of God compels us to leave, to move on from familiar relationships, because we can't enter a new kingdom by staying with our old neighbors. Now, I have no reason to believe that Yahweh is specifically asking someone in this room today to skip town and leave their family behind as he did with Abram. If you do that, I don't want to take the blame for that one. (laughs) But I do believe, I do believe that he is asking many of us to make a new life, to leave the things of our old life behind. And that may, that may include relationships. It may include some of the ties we've made with the people in this world. The folks that you spend your time with, if they aren't helping you get closer to the Lord, they're helping you get further from the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians shouldn't have friendships or relationships with unsaved people. As a matter of fact, Christians should have friendships and relationships with unsaved people. But we need to be very, very careful about whom we've tied ourselves to. And that's a frightening thing to think about. That is a scary thing to think about unless you can be confident that God has promised you a people. And God promised Abram a people. And in Christ Jesus, you're an heir of that promise. If you're a new creature in Christ, there is a place that you belong in. And there is a people that you belong to. He didn't call you to go it alone. You are the heir of a great kingdom. You are part of a holy nation and you have a place in the community of God's people. And it's a good community to be a part of. Not because the people here are perfect, of course, but because despite our imperfections, good things are happening. Amen? Good things are happening in God's house today. Good things are happening for God's people today. God is at work in our midst. And the world is taking notice. That's part of his promise too. Did you know that God promised prestige? Verse 2, he said to Abram, I will bless you and I will make make you famous. Literally, he says, I will make your name big. I'm going to give you a big name, Abram, and you will be a blessing to others. Now, I think it would be a mistake for us to assume that what God was promising Abram was some sort of celebrity status. God did not say, Abram, I'm going to see to it that you are the world's very first Kardashian. (laughs) Though, as we will see, Abram did in fact become quite famous. And I think if there was a reality TV show about his life, it would have done quite well. I don't think that's what God's talking about, though. I think a better way of thinking about this particular element of the promise is to understand that God was saying that the world would soon take note of what God was doing in Abram's life. Do you know that the world is watching what God is doing in your life? You might not be the type of person who enjoys being the center of attention, but once you submit your life to Christ, There's a sense in which you no longer have a say in the matter. The world is taking note of what God is doing in your life. Don't fight it. Let the world see what God is doing in your life. I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he told his listeners, let your light shine before others so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. The world takes notice 
of what's going on in your life. I'm going to give you four words here. I like these four words. I want you to think about this. Changed lives change lives. Can I say that again? Changed lives change lives. Say that five times fast. The blind man could suddenly see and everybody wanted to know about it. The lame man was found dancing and skipping and running and jumping down the street and everybody wanted to come see what happened. The barren woman was pregnant and the whole village wanted to figure out what had happened to her. The guy who used to hunt the Christians down now claims to be one of them and the world couldn't stop talking about it. Now you might not think that your testimony, your story is quite so dramatic as some of those, You might think that your story doesn't seem exciting or dramatic enough for people to take notice, but I need to tell you this today. According to the word of the Lord, you're wrong. You are the heir of a promise that says God is making you famous. And through that prestige, you are going to be a blessing to others. Does that sound overwhelming? Intimidating? Maybe even frightening? Well, don't worry, because God promised protection. Verse 3, he says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. I think if Abram was alive today, and God was talking to Abram today in today's vernacular, he would have said, Abram, bro, I got your back. That's what he's saying. I got your back. I got your back. As an heir to the promise that God made to Abram, you can be certain that God has your back. He cares about the way the people of the world treat you. And he doesn't just care about it. He's taking notes. And he's keeping receipts. And someday every account will be put in order. Do you hear the promise of the Lord today? You say, God, I am oppressed. I'm a victim here. They're out to get me. God says, I know. I know. You say, Lord, I don't feel like I'm being treated fairly at work or in my neighborhood or maybe even in my own family. This isn't right. This is, can I use one of your words, God? This is unrighteous. Did I use that right, Lord? And the Lord says, I know. I know, I'm keeping receipts. I'm keeping receipts. Someday, every account will be put into order. Parenthetically, church, can we keep this particular element of the promise in mind as we consider how we treat one another? Can I make a confession today? And I don't think this one is going to surprise you. My confession is this. Sometimes, certain Christians really tick me off. You know what I mean? There are times when I get frustrated and upset because another believer said something that I think is pretty foolish or they did something that I think is pretty inexcusable. I know you guys don't suffer from that kind of affliction, but I'm just here to tell you that as your pastor, as chief sinner of the organization today, I got to tell you, sometimes these Christians really tick me off. Amen. Let me say a couple of things about that. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that requires me to love and support everything that other Christian people say and do. And 
I do think, I do think that we need to be vigilant about confronting sin when we see it, and especially when we see it within our own ranks. So I'm not for a minute suggesting here that the godly thing to do is, is to just turn a blind eye. But, 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 I think when we confront sin, I think when we deal with the vision, I think when we tick each other off, I think we can be careful to do so in a way that honors the work of God in one another's life. We can do so in a way that blesses rather than curses. We can do so in a way that recognizes that each one of us is an heir of the promise. Which leads me to one final thought about this promise, which is this. God promised a purpose. He told Abram in verse 3, all the families of earth will be blessed through you. Now traditionally scholars have understood this element of the promise to find its fulfillment ultimately in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a genealogical descendant of Abram. And Jesus was the means by which God gave all families on earth the opportunity to be saved. So when, when God is saying to Abram, by you, by you, all families on earth will be blessed. He's prophesying that it is through your, your ancestry, your, your lineage, it is through you that I will bring my ultimate blessing that will be available, Paul remembered this, not just to the Jews, but to all families of earth, that this promise was fulfilled by Jesus. And that's why if you turn all the way in your Bible to the beginning of the New Testament, we're at the beginning of the Old Testament now, but if you turn to the beginning of the New Testament, the very first book there is the Gospel of Matthew. In the very first chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, we usually skip over because it's boring. And the reason it's boring is because it's a family tree. It's a family tree that brings us to Jesus, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so so begat so and so so there was a lot of begatting going on in Matthew chapter 1 take another look at that family tree where does it begin it begins with Abraham or Abram or Abram depending on if you want to put another dollar in the jar or not that's three <laughs> is that three good luck splitting up my three bucks and having lunch on that Abraham Abram to Jesus it matters and that's why Paul, in the passage that we read today, pointed to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made to who? Abram. But I think both Matthew and Paul and a host of others would agree with me that God's promise of purpose, which he gave to Abram, is in force today for all who are in Jesus. It's in force for all the heirs of the promise. And that means that you and I also have a God-given purpose. And that purpose, just like Abram's purpose, is to extend God's blessing to all people on earth. That's the mission that God gave to his people. God gave it to Abram. It was reaffirmed by Jesus in his final days. He said, go into all the world preaching the gospel. It applies to us now. You and I have been saved. Yes, that's true. No one's questioning that today, but we have been saved for a purpose. 
So let's end by circling all the way back to the point that Paul made to the Galatians about what we have to do to earn our salvation. I'm not aware of any circles today in which the idea that Gentiles might somehow have to buy into Judaism in order to be saved according to the message in the Gospel of Christ. I, I think that debate has long been settled. But I think its theme continues to prop uh, it's to creep up on us from time to time. There's an awful lot of us versus them in the world, isn't it? Is this blessing for us or is this blessing for them? Does God love us or does God love them? There's an awful lot of us and them. And if we remember what Paul said to the Galatians, he's saying, you got to get over yourself with that. Because we are new creatures in Christ. All of us who have been baptized into Christ have been made new creatures. There is no Jew and Gentile anymore. There is no slave and free anymore. There is no Republican and Democrat anymore. There is no American or Chinese anymore. There is no Cub fan or Sox fan anymore. I'm gonna leave the dividing line of cheddar between the Bears fans and the Packers fans because that will last into all eternity. But all other divisions among people must must be obliterated in light of the gospel. That's that's almost. <laughs> you you got you're all praying for me now. I know you are. That's the promise. That's the promise. That's the promise. You're a new people. You have a new identity. The gospel says. You don't find your identity in the old version of who you used to belong to or the places you used to go or the purposes you found or the things you did. That's not your identity anymore. You have a new identity. Amen. So we circle back to the point Paul's making to the Galatians. What do you have to do to buy into the gospel? What work do you have to do to be saved? As it turns out, there's no work we can do. Coming to Christ makes us heirs. Not of a financial fortune, but heirs of something far more valuable. We are heirs of a promise that God made many thousands of years ago. And so I want to leave you with this today. You might not feel like you know where you belong but you're the heir of a great promise and God has a place for you. If you're struggling to believe that today, perhaps it's because you're still living in Haran. It's time to get up and to go. It's time to move in God's direction. It's time to become a pilgrim in search of the land that God has prepared for you. And you might not feel like you fit in, but you're the heir of a great promise. And God has a people for you. So if you're trying to work out your faith all on your own, if you're staying at home and and drinking in only from books and podcasts and YouTubes, it's time to get off the couch and find your tribe. Because you need to become a part of the community that God has gathered you into. And you might not feel like you matter but you're the heir of a great promise and God has given you great prestige. 
If you've lived your life in shame and regret, then it's time today to finally recognize that God has done a transformational work in your heart and the world needs to see. And if you don't want to show them, I got news for you. They're watching anyhow. Look, you might not feel confident, but you're the heir of a great promise. And God has promised you His protection. Your life will always have obstacles and opposition, but the all-powerful Creator of the universe is committed to your well-being. Can you just chew on that for a moment? God cares what happens to you. Why? Because you're the heir of a great promise. And that means God is on your side. And church, you might not feel like you have a role to play in the divine story. But you're the heir of a great promise. And that means God has a purpose for you. Nothing you could ever accomplish in this life will measure up to the impact that you have on eternity when you live into God's promises. He created you. He called you. And He chose you precisely because He knows that he can use you. You see, my self-doubt is irrelevant. That sense that I have in my flesh that says, I don't think I can handle this. I don't think I can do this. That, that humility that I, me, I'm talking about me now, that I have as a pastor when I stand up in Sunday morning and go, here we go again. That's irrelevant. Because it's not me, but it's Christ in me. And when you're where God wants you to be with who God wants you to be with, doing what God wants you to do, it's not you. It's Christ in you. This is why Paul says to us, I'm crucified with Christ. Yet not I, but Christ who is within me, right? It's not me. It's Christ within me. Why? Because God created me for a purpose. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a pilgrim in a land I don't belong in. I'm a pilgrim in a place that I wasn't exactly created for. And I have this sense in my heart that God is saying to me, get up and keep moving. And so I get up and I move. In church, you know me well enough. You've seen me up close. You know that I don't do it particularly well every day of my life. But I'm compelled that there's mercy. I'm compelled that there's grace. And so I might trip and I might stumble on my pilgrimage today, but I'm committed to the fact that tomorrow morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to start moving. I'm going to start moving again. I'm going to start moving again. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a pilgrim in a place that I don't belong in because God has called me to something different. Look, You might love your life right now. You might be living your best life now. Uh, That's great. If that's the case, I hope, I hope it's because you are living into God's plan and God's purpose. I'm not telling you you got to go home and leave your family and quit your job and, you know, wander the earth or something like that. I don't recommend your journey onto Canaan. Things are pretty rough there these days. 
But I do think that the Lord is asking each one of us to adopt the heart of the pilgrim. To hear, as he said to our spiritual great-great-great-great-granddaddy Abram, get up. It's time to move. Get up from the place where you are and go, where, Lord? Where are we going? Not yet. Not yet. And go to the land. I, I will show you. I will show you. Go to a place where I can do a great thing. Not just in your life, Abram, but in the life of your children. This is the land I've prepared for your descendants. What descendants, Lord? I'm 70 years old. And the cupboard's dry. <laughs> God says, wait. I'm going to have to turn a couple pages in the story before we get to that. But just wait. I know what I'm doing. There are promises of God on your life that you might not fully understand because you can't see the evidence of them. There's this land I will give your descendants. I don't have descendants. This people you will give me, this great nation. We don't have people. We don't have the place we're going. I don't know where this is. You make my name great. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares who I am. You have a purpose for me? God, I don't even know who you are. You see what I'm saying? So much of what God was telling Abram made no sense to him just because he didn't have evidence of it yet in his life. I'm convinced that God is calling you to things that you don't yet have evidence for. Will you pick up and go anyhow? Will you pick up and move anyhow? Will you submit yourself to his word anyhow? You are the heir of a great promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that are still available to us. Abram lived Thousands of years ago, the words that you spoke to him have been preserved through time and space, specifically, Lord, because your spirit knew that we, in Hobson Road Community Church, in Downers Grove, Illinois, in the year 2023, we would need to hear them. We would need to be reminded that in Christ, we are heirs of a great promise. Lord, I know that the world feels overwhelming. I know that the enemy seems to be without weakness. I know, Lord, that all the things and all the evidence we can collect says that we are insignificant. But today, Lord, we stand on a promise that is greater than our ability to understand. It's greater than our ability to conceive or, or to grasp or to fully take hold of. That's what faith looks like. Faith looks like the ones who step out on the journey even when they don't know the destination, but they do know the tour guide. And Lord, we respond to your word today. My prayers for my brothers and sisters in this room who have heard that call, who have that stirring in their heart that says, this is not the world I was meant for. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? Lord, as we move on your word, as we stumble in the rocks in the desert, as we trip and fall and kind of make a mess of things along the way as we're so prone to do, Lord, would you give us not only your mercy and your grace, but also your strength to get up tomorrow morning, take up the tents and move again. Bit by bit, the word said, he kept moving south in the land that you had given to him. Lord, bit by bit, we want to follow you. 
remind us in our moments of self-doubt, in our moments of uncertainty, that we are, in fact, heirs of a great, great promise. And do your work within us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.